Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Ben Laidler, Tama Hudson Research CEO. Ben, the story really over the last week hasn't changed. It's the short-term risk, the long-term opportunity. Does the news this morning help us become just a little bit more tolerant of some of the negative stories we've heard across America over the weekend? Absolutely. I mean, it gives you more visibility, I think, on where we're going. I think it accelerates... Uh, this sort of rotation uh, into cyclicals and maybe value that the market has sort of been trying to make, but has, has lacked the sort of courage to make that leap. And I, and I think uh, you're now you're absolutely getting that. We've had this sort of double catalyst of we're now through the election and we can sort of face forward into what I think is going to be a very big 2021 sort of growth <coughs> rebound. And, um, and, and the vaccine or the incremental vaccine news, I think we've got a lot more still to come here, um, you know, helps us sort of bridge that gap, if you like, over these sort of winter infection spike to, um, you know, a gradual sort of renormalization of, of activity and, and the way to play down these, these sort of cyclical stocks, which is um, where I think we're massively underestimating the sort of operating leverage. Ben, you have been way out, way out, way out front on this. What we have is a distributed base with maybe some catharsis, of course, in March or April. What's your percentage up visibility out 12 months, out 24 months, out 36 months? How big is the Laidler leap? Listen, I, I think it's huge. I mean, I, just to give you, so if, if you like the sort of tip of this, right, if I look at those sort of reopening stocks, the ones that have been uh, sort of most impacted by this, even with all the rally over the last couple of weeks, I mean, they've still underperformed this sort of market darling sort of uh, work from home stocks by over 80 percentage points. Uh, they're nearly four times price to book cheaper. Uh, they're not making any money. Um, uh, there's been where all the, the biggest surprises in third quarter earnings have come from on the, on the sort of positive side. And, um, you know, revenues are still down between 30 to over 100 percent. So, you know, that's your sort of order of magnitude. I think this rotation has sort of barely, um, it, it's frankly barely getting started. And, um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, the other sort of fuel on this fire is, is investor positioning. And we've been saying for a while how cautious it's been. But just in the last week, you've seen it begin to turn and actually turn quite dramatically. And that, I think, is, you know, the, the, the fuel that's going to come into the market here. So, Ben, what on a day like today are you actually buying or doing? I mean, there is this feeling that long term it's going to be a, a good scenario. Short term, still a lot of volatility. Are you active on a day like today? Listen, if you're, you know, your average investor is not carrying anything like as, as much risk, I think, as they, as they should be right now. Uh, you know, we're overweight small cap, we're overweight industrials, we're overweight real estate, consumer durables. And we're not overweight all cyclicals or, or even all value. I think this is much more a cyclical story, really, than a, than, than a sort of value story. I'd make a small distinction there. But, but yes, I, I'd be focusing on where... You know, where are you getting the most operating leverage to uh, the sort of fear of the virus uh, beginning to moderate over the next few months? And, and, and again, I think it's you know in these small caps, industrials and, and real estate particularly. And it takes you outside the United States, I imagine, as well, Ben. If you really want to get that high leverage play on the reopening of the vaccine, it's got to take you to Europe, which has been beaten up so badly. And it has that mechanical, that composition towards the names, the themes that you're talking about. Ben, can you walk me through your Europe call? right now. 
Europe and, and I would also say the sort of cyclical bit of emerging markets. Uh, so, so yes, so domestic cyclicals in Europe, uh, for us, that's sort of financials. It's pretty much the cheapest, most hated, and one of the larger sort of sectors in Europe where, you know, we're overweight, we're overweight there. Uh, but also within EM, right? I mean, everybody, including us, has been sort of hiding out in China and North Asia, first in, first out. But, uh, you know, the rest of EM is, is really your much more cyclical bit of EM, you know, very similar to this sort of, you know, US re reopening story, very depressed earnings and a lot of operating leverage. Um, I guess the you know the one caveat just on Europe is um, is just watch the dollar and and the flip side of that the strength of the euro. Um, you know a lot of these European uh, corporates um, you know sort of very very global very international. So you know to the extent we get you know too much of a euro move uh, that's definitely a headwind. But yes broadly Europe you know much cheaper much more depressed earnings uh, and, um, and 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 just seeing a lot more operating leverage here. Ben, great to catch up, as always. Ben Laidler there of Tower Hudson Research. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Right now, we're going to do what Lisa, John, and I feel is really important. Yes, we do the markets, we do economics, we do the politics, the international relations, but you need to understand the science of what we're talking about. Robert Murphy is acclaimed at Northwestern University in infectious diseases, and one time, long ago and far away, went through Leninger's biochemistry. Dr. Murphy, good morning. I want you to explain in a King's English how messenger RNA goes into the cell, comes out to the cytoplasm, and kills this virus. Are we assured that can happen? Well, apparently so. You've got two message, messenger RNA vaccines that have been put out there in tens of thousands of people. This is not a small number of people. I think the uh, Pfizer one was like over 40,000 people and the Moderna 30,000. A lot of people have taken this vaccine. And we, were, we would have been happy if 50 or 60 percent of, uh, of them were protected from getting it. And they're 90 and 94.5 percent. This is, this is really way beyond expectations. It is, it is original in mRNA uh, research as well. Explain to right. our audience what will be different in this distribution versus a polio vaccine, a flu vaccine, or more mm -hmm. bacterial shots as well. Well, the the big it's it's a vaccine just like the other ones that you mentioned. Uh, MR, messenger RNA is is a rel, is a very small protein and it's fragile, and so it has to be kept cold. And the difference between the Pfizer and the Moderna is how cold does it have to keep? Uh, the Pfizer one has to be kept at uh, minus 70 Celsius or minus 90 Fahrenheit, uh, very cold. Uh, it's doable, believe me, it can be done. But it, that is going to be a challenge in, in the whole cold chain supply. The Moderna one uh, has to be kept cold, but then when it gets out into the market, it can be up to uh, basically uh, just above freezing. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit easier to move that around. But either one of them, it can happen. Uh, and we're probably going to need both. Dr. Murphy, I'm going to go home today and talk with my 8-year-old and 11-year-old son and tell them there is a vaccine, another efficacy uh, study coming out, and they're going to mm -hmm. say, when's the pandemic going to be over? What's the answer based on the distribution models that you've seen? A year from now. Really? Yeah. A full year. So walk us through what happens over the next year. So what happens is, so these companies have to submit their EUA, emergency use authorization, you know, the data will be gone over by an external advisory board uh, and they're going to make sure that it's safe uh, and they're going to continue to follow those patients that are in the study. 
then the the vaccines will be available uh, probably the end of December, most likely. Now, there'll be maybe 20 million doses from each one of the companies uh, and they'll get out there. And then it's who's going to get those first 20 million doses? Uh, you know, right now, there's a lot of reluctance in the world to take it. They think this is going too fast. There's a lot of people that are against vaccines. But I think once the data is out there and if it's as good as it sounds and it's verified independently, people are going to be lining up for this thing. So they'll start pushing the vaccine out and it's going to come out in uh, to different populations, people on the front lines, uh, people with high risk for severe complications, diabetics, older people, uh, people with underlying cancer, for instance. The, the, the higher risk people will get it first. And then I would think that by the second quarter of next year, uh, there'll be enough companies out with the vaccines that it'll start really uh, penetrating into the general population and then basically just go line up and get it. For our audience worldwide, if you're just tuning in on Bloomberg TV and radio. We're with Dr. Robert Murphy of Northwestern University. Off the back of some news from Moderna that the coronavirus vaccine was found to be 94.5% effective in analysis. Doctor, just give me a moment. I want to turn to the price action just for a moment and have a look at what's happening in the United States. Equity futures are picking up here with a bid on the small caps. The Russell up by 2.64%. We advance 46 points. Tom, for our audience right now, we're grappling with the same question we grappled with last week. How much bad news can this market ignore in the short term on the hope that the long term looks better? And my question would be, can you really untangle and draw a hard distinction between those two stories? Short term, not great. Long term, better. And doesn't the short term, to some degree, shape what the future looks like in this economy? There's always a balance of that, John. Notice the red on the screen for the NASDAQ 100, where this is a rotation. And I would point out, John, as you go back to Dr. Murphy in Chicago, I would point out, uh, John, very importantly, that the rebound in value, cyclicals, mid-caps, and the rest of them isn't even back to the previous regression. Yeah, we came up off Pfizer. Yeah, we came up off Moderna. But we're not even back to trend. They were so discounted. Doctor, I'd just like to finish with a final question on the price of a potential vaccine. These are private companies. Some of them have worked with the government. Any idea on how much this might cost for governments Uh, to provide the general public with a vaccine like this? Well, the government, the U.S. government has already purchased hundreds of millions of doses. It's already paid for. It's going to go out there free. So uh, what it actually costs, uh, I don't know. It's anyone's guess. Dr. Great to catch up this morning. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Dr. Robert Murphy there of Northwestern University. We've been looking at the vaccines which go out into 2021. Now we need to look at the reality of the present. You do that when you're a politician. You do that when the Buffalo Bills lose a heartbreaker uh, to Arizona, as we saw yesterday. She is the lady from Buffalo, the lieutenant governor of the Empire State. Uh, Kathy Hochul joins us uh, right now. Kathy, I've got to go to the money question for all of our New York City audience on radio and on television. What is your sense with Governor Cuomo of what Mayor de Blasio and you will do about the school system of New York City? Well, thanks for having me on the show, and I'm sorry you had to twist the knife in my heart about the bill's loss, but that's another topic. Uh, With respect to the schools, the time that was uh, back in the summertime when we were having lower infection rates and the parents and the teachers and the city administration decided that if the number of infection rates hit 3%, that that'd be a trigger to close down schools. But what the governor is saying now is that we're in a different era. We're now finding out the 
because of testing in schools, that the schools may be a safer place than having right. the children back <clears throat> out in their communities. So we, we are prepared to, you know, you know, work with them to say, you know, can we make an adjustment here? Can we talk about having okay. the schools stay open because that may be better? Okay, let's do the math. It's 0.17% in the schools. Many other states are at 9%, which is where New York State's talking about, and de Blasio was married to 3%. How do you convince him and the teachers union in New York City to get to where Nebraska is, to get to where Oklahoma is, for that matter, to get to where Chicago is on this percent statistic? Well, that doesn't matter. It's what the parents and the teachers and the administrators feel comfortable with. We're not going to, we can say that you're going to be going back to school, but if the teachers say we don't feel safe, they're not showing up. If parents don't feel safe, the kids aren't showing up, and then you basically don't have an educational process that works at all. So you have to get buy-in from everyone. And that's simply what the governor has proposed over the weekend, to not have an automatic shutdown at 3%, but to use what's going on in the schools, testing results that we didn't have when the decision was made to trigger 3%. Now we have more data points. Why not look at the data that's in front of you? And if a school, a school itself has a low rate of infection, you know, less than 1% or whatever the metrics are going to be, why not keep them open? Because not only is it safer perhaps for the children, but also you think about the child care crisis that we've spoken about on your show for a long time, about how are we going to be able to let you know, parents, particularly women, because it always falls on the shoulders of women, to figure out how to get back to their jobs when their schools are shut down again. That hurts our economy. It hurts our comeback. And so there's many dynamics involved here. Safety always being first, but realizing now that a 3% threshold is something that should be relooked at with, with the consultation with the parents and the teachers. Kathy, the reality that you're looking at right now is so vastly different than the reality that equity strategists look out uh, when they look out over until the end of 2021. How much economic scarring will they be? Will there be? Excuse me, in uh, New York State, New York City, as layoffs have to begin, as we do not necessarily get any aid from Washington D.C. during a lame duck session. We won't have that aid immediately, is what it seems clear to me, and. I've I'm willing to be pleasantly surprised that we can actually get uh, Mitch McConnell to do the right thing and to say that, yes, states have suffered. Oh, I realize now it's not just the blue states. The red states are in trouble. Therefore, we will help them now because he will go by whatever he thinks is in the political interest of his own party. Okay, fine. We're at a point now where the interests are all aligned. All American states need help with the testing, with the uh, PPE, the help getting more doctors and nurses into some of our remote states that didn't expect to be dealing with this. So but even if that doesn't occur in this lame duck session, I do believe that Joe Biden understands the urgency with this. Governor Cuomo has a strong relationship with him. We all do. And he knows that you cannot have a recovery. And we've said this before, a recovery for the nation without states like New York being able to come back and come back strong and to reduce the chance of more massive layoffs and to keep businesses prospering. We want that is our objective. We have to keep that going. So under a Biden administration, we feel very confident that the money will start flowing for state and local governments to help us get out of our uh, holes uh, budgetarily, but also to continue funding initiatives like vaccination distribution. Lieutenant Governor, that will be early next year. We have some tough months ahead of us, as you know, and the numbers out of America have been quite worrying across many states in the United States. Lieutenant Governor, the president has been criticised for not being engaged enough on this issue, with cases increasing at a rapid rate. What is it you need from the federal government specifically that you've requested and aren't getting right now? 
money. Uh, also, a, a distribution plan for the vaccination that could be helpful. Let's work on that now, not wait till the vaccine is available, then all of a sudden say, oh, let's start figuring it out. That has to be figured out now. In the state of New York, we started working on our plan back in the summertime. So, but money is the number one thing because that will allow us to continue funding the state and local, the, the communities, uh, the first responders, the teachers, the health care yep. workers, the child care workers. I think we need money first because they didn't help us when it came to testing. We could have used the Defense Production Act invoked months and months ago. Basically, now the, the president checked out. He never wanted to leave. This could have been his Winston Churchill moment. He could have been a hero. He could have won the election if he had done this right. And he blew it, basically. And now with the consequences are he needs to move over. Let the transition team of Joe Biden take over. Let them have the opportunity to find out you know, where the money is, what, what programs need to be continued, what regulations need to be changed. Let them hit the ground running and start saving our country because it did not have to fall this far. New York State still has the third lowest infection rate in the nation after Vermont and Maine were at about 2.6%. The rest of the nation could be at 2.6% and we could be functioning. But the president didn't care. He didn't do anything along the lines of what we were asking for early on. So the damage is done, and now it's time to do cleanup. Lieutenant Governor, appreciate your time. The conversation will have to continue. Kathy Hochul there of New York. Right now, and this is really important on a Monday, let's recalibrate the American economy. He is award-winning. Stephen Stanley with Amherst Pierpont does wonderful work with the conventional function Y equals C plus I plus G plus whatever the export noise is. Steve Stanley, what matters right now within that equation? Well, I think consumption has really been the, the star of the show, um, and that's what we're looking at. I mean, consumer has held up much better than I think most people expected through the pandemic. And now with renewed restrictions and, and kind of cuts in, in mobility a little bit, I think there's obviously some concern about whether the consumer can continue uh, to get back toward normal over the next couple of months. Give us a calendar of the need for income substitution. Benefits, I guess, 1231 disappear for many. But how urgent for you is income replacement right now? Yeah, I think we're in a different place than we were in the spring. I mean, in the spring, we we put forward the $600 a month unemployment benefits as well as a, a round of rebate checks for everyone. And I think at this point, um, the the whatever income replacement we do probably needs to be more targeted. So I think the idea of continuing the unemployment benefits, certainly, um, you know, continuing them beyond mid-year or the end of the year, but also um, – Maybe putting forward another bonus, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be $600, but, you know, perhaps three or 400 or whatever, makes a lot of sense because there's still plenty of people who basically can't work uh, because of the pandemic. I- I'm not sure that we need across-the-board help the way, that, uh, the way that we got in the spring. So that, to me, that's the key distinction. And Stephen, this is a really important nuance because right now we're looking at American consumer finances that are the best shape in decades. People took these checks, they paid down their debt, they don't have anywhere to go to spend money, and so you're seeing really, really good balance sheets, but that's an aggregate. What is the long-term economic consequence of the lower tier of workers who are seeing their jobs get cut at a faster pace and who don't have the same kind of cushion even after the round of stimulus? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, obviously those are the sorts of people that have to live paycheck to paycheck. So the loss of a paycheck means a lot more uh, for someone in that 
uh, financial situation than it would for um, you know someone that has a nest egg. And I think again, that's why th- there is, in my view, there is urgency to make sure that we're providing ample um, support uh, to that group of people, the people who are unable to work and and need the money right away. I think you know the, maybe the urgency for uh, for the rest of the population isn't as great. I mean, we certainly made up uh, over half of the jobs that were lost during the lockdown. So there are a lot of folks who were out of work in the spring who were back, uh, but there's still plenty who are not. And I think you know those are the folks that we want to try to take care of, and especially now that we have a sense that perhaps it's only a few more months. You know, maybe the vaccines are broadly distributed by the spring um, and things can get back to something much closer to normal at that point. So if I'm a if I'm a lawmaker at this point, it makes a lot more makes it easier, I would think, uh, to say, okay, well, we can support people for three or four more months, but it's not an indefinite thing anymore. Stephen, let's talk about the economic data. Tom mentioned the Asian currency is doing tremendously well recently. The data out of China, fantastic, decent again this morning. I don't think it's ever too early to talk about payrolls for this month when it comes out in early December. Stephen, what are you comfortable forecasting at this point, given the direction of travel with economic restrictions coming up across America? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say I, most likely that we're going to see another deceleration, um, and this one could be more significant than what we've seen over the last couple of months. The, the pace of growth was fairly steady over the last two or three months, I would say, uh, certainly in the private numbers. Um, you're probably going to see a slowdown, obviously, with the virus having picked up. But I would say, you know, we've seen, we've seen a flurry of new restrictions put in place over the last week or so. And so my guess is, I mean, we've just, last week was the payroll survey week. So my guess is that whatever um, slowdown you're going to see in the pace of job growth over the next several months is more likely to, to, to be clear in December than in November. I think we'll get some slowdown perhaps um, for November, but then maybe a, a more significant one on the back of some of these virus restrictions in December. Let's add to this then, Stephen, and think about the fact that this economy has had the stress test, a severe one, back in spring. Can you model what it might look like when you get the same stress test again? You have it once, you get it a second time, and how corporations and individuals might respond, maybe differently? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing is that people have kind of gotten used to the, to the new reality. So if you think about, for example, manufacturers, I mean, they had to... They, closed their plants for almost two months, and then when they came back, they had to retool their operations to provide for a more socially distant uh, workplace. And having done that, um, it makes it, I think it makes it far easier now uh, because they've already kind of adjusted. Um, so really, the, I, I think the bulk of the adjustment that needs to be made now is just kind of dialing up and back the, the uh, degree to which people are getting out and about you know, the mobility and um, the level of contact that people are having. And so that does affect restaurants and high-contact industries like that. But I think the bulk of the economy, the rest of the economy, hopefully has already made the necessary adjustments and won't be disrupted too badly um, in the current situation. Steve, is the stock market linked to your world? Um, I think I would look at it as a, as a gauge of, of sentiment. Um, and I think, you know, clearly at this point, it, it seems to me that the stock market is looking through or investors are looking through the current bad news and, and to, you know, the prospect of, a, of a, an effective vaccine. 
at some point next year and then getting back to something closer to normal uh, over the course of 2021. I mean, that doesn't do anything for us today in terms of the number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths, but it certainly suggests that people are hopeful that things will get back to something closer to normal uh, as we move into 2021. Stephen, there is some hope in this market this morning, that's for sure. Stephen Stanley there of Amherst Pierpont. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.